apologies. I had to uh, start the recording and I had to back out in order to do that. Okay, so now we're all we're all back. Took us a while the time, 15 minutes to get ourselves started this time, but uh, uh, hopefully that will resolve itself as the course goes on. So uh, welcome anybody here who has uh, who is not here in person, and uh, we are trying to record these. I walked through the uh, through the uh, course requirements here. They're fairly simple, uh, self-explanatory. They're available on the web. Uh, so uh, if you have any questions about those, why you can email me. The uh, email in, in, in information is right there uh, on your screen and in the notes. So if you have a question, you need to follow up on something, why go ahead and, and, and use that, okay? Uh, so we're going to be talking about the doctrine of salvation logically ordered, uh, not completely chronologically ordered. There's a lot of elements in the uh, salvation event uh, that are simultaneous. Nonetheless, there does seem to be an order that commends itself uh, in, the, in the study here, and that's the outline, simple outline that we're going to be using here, okay? I start by saying that the doctrine of salvation tends to be an attractive one, um, and I think it reflects in the number of people that signed up for the class, uh, because we tend to think of doctrine of salvation as, as the important one. It's the gospel. Um, the fact is that none of the doctrines of Scripture are more or less essential than another. Each one uh, is important in its own right, but this one, I guess, uh, sort of gains a lot of uh, attention here because it's the gateway uh, for people into the community of believers and into the possession of the rest of the doctrines of Scripture, okay? So uh, apart from uh, redemption, uh, the rest of the course of study does not make any sense to us. And so it does loom large for us, uh, but we shouldn't think of any doctrine of Scripture being more important than another if it is clear. I think the clarity of Scripture and the clarity of the specific Scriptures that we study is the issue. Uh, if the Bible clearly states something, it's important. Uh, God doesn't waste words, and so the words that we find in the Scripture, even if they seem to be an, of, of an obscure topic, are important to us, okay? I say here that the salvation event, and it, we, must, we must be sure we recognize here uh, that it is an event. Uh, part, of the, uh, part of the tension that uh, we have uh, during the, especially the 19th century, is that salvation lost its event status. Uh, you didn't get saved. You just sort of morphed your way into a good, right relationship with a bunch of people called Christians. And, and what was suppressed was the fact that there is a conversion event, okay? And uh, if you are saying, you know, I, don't, I don't know that uh, that has ever happened to me, why? Uh, this is not only just information about what has happened, but actually could be instruction on, on, on what, what, what needs to happen, okay? So there is a salvation event, and it happens at a moment in time, and about seven or eight of the items, bullet points below, all happen at once. Some of them actually occur earlier, some of them occur later, but about seven of them take place at the same time. Still, there are distinguishable factors here that say that there's a logical progression in the process of salvation, and it's not simply uh, a, a uh, uh, everything jumbled at once. 
And so we're going to use this, this order of salvation, sometimes called the, in, in, your, in your reading, for instance, going to be called the Ordo Salutis. That's just simply Latin for the order of salvation. And what I want to do tonight is simply define all of the terms. Now, if we have huge questions here coming up as we look through these definitions, uh, we may say, you know, just, just wait until we cover them. But these are important words that we're going to be used that we're going to be using throughout the course. And I want to make sure you have at least a rudimentary understanding of what these terms mean. Uh, the first of here is election. This is God's sovereign choice in eternity past. And we'll look at all the texts that support and establish these points. So God's sovereign choice in eternity past of individuals to be recipients of all the redemptive benefits of Christ's atonement. Okay, so this is something that takes place in eternity past, why it appears first on our list. Okay, it, note here also, it's God's sovereign in this. He does not choose based on what we have done or will do, but rather it is his own sovereign choice in the matter. And it is of individuals. And there's, there's, there are some uh, approaches to Christian theology that talk about election as a corporate thing. So God elects the church, and we become a part of the church by some sort of decision or activity on our part. And so God doesn't actually elect us as individuals, but just the church of which we are a part. And we're going to see here that while God does speak of electing the church, uh, we should think of that as 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 a as a collective thing. So he he uh, he elects each one of us individually as members of the church. And this election then is to all of the all of the salvific benefits of Christ's atonement. Uh, once election is occurs, it 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 enacts a string, sometimes called the the golden chain of events that unfolds all the way to glorification. There's no stalling along the way. Second element here, and again, we're just, we're just defining them for now. Uh, we will uh, spend time uh, looking at each one at great length as we go through the course. Atonement, atonement. Uh, sometimes we think of this, uh, this word as at-one-ment. So you can sort of break the word apart into at-one-ment. So uh, the idea here is that we are made one with God. So we are we are, we are the, the, the tension uh, that uh, has caused us to be separated from God is resolved in the atonement, the atonement of Christ. So the restoration then of man's broken fellowship with God through the substitutionary removal of guilt and gift of righteousness in satisfaction of God's legal demands. And I've got a lot of data in those definitions, but hopefully you're, you're catching what's going on here. God has a legal demand. The, the demand is perfection. Uh, we flopped. You know, we failed miserably. And here We're going to have to talk a little bit here, review from last semester about the doctrine of depravity. Okay, so we, we failed. And so there's a broken relationship. That is why we need to be saved. You know, sometimes it's said you have to, have to get someone lost before you can get them saved. And there's some real truth to that, right? Uh, there are people who are going around who don't imagine that they have any problems or problems significant enough to need uh, 
uh, salvation or atonement, but uh, that's the, the point here. There's a legal demand, and it has to be met by someone. Uh, it has to be met by the sinner uh, ordinarily. However, if we uh, are included in this atonement of Jesus Christ, if he dies for us, uh, then he substitutes his own death for ours and furthermore substitutes his own life for ours. Uh, so that we have the merit necessary uh, to please God to to be accepted by Him. So that's atonement, and we'll uh, we we talked a little bit about this under the doctrine of Christ. Uh, we will pursue this a little bit more uh, during this course. The next point here on the list is union with Christ, um, which is the identification of an individual with the atoning work of Christ in time which functions as the fountainhead from which every spiritual blessing derives. Okay? It's probably the hardest one to fit into uh, the order of salvation. In fact, uh, if, you're, if you're reading in your textbook, uh, Dr. Murray uh, suggests that if there's any item on this list uh, that can be most associated with the idea of what is salvation, this is the one. This, this is the point right here. You are united with Christ, and, and by being united with Christ, all of the benefits of salvation accrue to you. So union with Christ is the event in time whereby you uh, receive in time those benefits that are secured uh, by the atoning work of Christ. Um, and we find here, as we work through the scriptures, that all of the events from this point down are associated with our union with Christ. We are elected in Christ from eternity past. We're regenerated in Christ in time. Uh, and so of all the terms here uh, that, that can, can be a summary term for what salvation is or redemption is, this is, this is the one. Okay? But because the balance of the elements of salvation flow out of union with Christ, I've placed it here. Um, Murray says it's the umbrella term. Uh, but I've, I've tried to put it into the uh, list. Um, we'll have a discussion later on uh, when we talk about union with Christ about uh, the, the place, some place this all the way down here with justification. Um, and the reason this is the case is because there are several passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, the, uh, the idea of being in Christ as being in the body of Christ or the church of Christ, which is something unique to the New Testament. And so some have said, well, union with Christ really isn't as important as it might seem. It's, it's only available to New Testament saints. Uh, but I think that's a misunderstanding of what's going on. We probably have two senses of being in Christ. There's the union with Christ for all the benefits of redemption. And then there's also a union with the body of Christ or the people of God in the New Testament uh, that, that really constitutes a second definition of this term. Or a phrase. Okay. Next item on the list is our effectual call, and I paired this with regeneration. Um, we're actually going to talk about the call in two senses. There's a general call uh, that goes out to all persons who hear the gospel. Of course, not everyone who hears the gospel re responds favorably uh, to the gospel. And so the question is, what is it that takes 
the call from being general gospel call that most people ignore to the effectual call or the call that actually accomplishes all that it calls upon the believer to the, the, the individual to do. And the reason I've paired regeneration here is because that's the thing. Regeneration is that which makes the call effectual. So it is the gracious summons whereby God ends our resistance to God by imparting to us the new nature. Okay, so that's, that's, and so the impartation of the new nature is the real short definition of what regeneration is. And uh, because we are united with Christ, he gives us two benefits, okay, two general classes of benefits, if I can put it that way. We have benefits that we experience, and there are benefits that come to us legally, okay? The ones that we experience are those like regeneration, where we become a new man. And, you know, I, I hope I'm not excluding anybody by saying new man. Uh, it's just the terminology that's used in scripture. You are a new person, is the idea. Uh, so you have, a, you have a new nature, you're a new man, and uh, because you are a new man, then you have, with that newness, new abilities. You have the ability to please God. So we're no longer totally depraved once regeneration has taken place. Okay? Uh, we are able to please God. It doesn't mean that sin is gone. The remnants of sin still linger with us. Nonetheless, there's a sense in which we can say we're no longer totally depraved. We are capable of pleasing God. And so we're able to exercise repentance. We're actually able to exercise faith. We're able to grow in grace and advance in our sanctification. Okay, so those, that's the experiential or experimental aspect of salvation. And then on the other side, we have the legal aspects. Okay, uh, justification. We are declared to be righteous. And you say, well, okay, is that, does that mean, is that fictional then? Is it, is it not real? Well, we're declared to be righteous because God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. Uh, but we aren't actually made righteous or perfectly righteous, certainly, uh, at, at the moment of our salvation, as you all well know, right? Uh, we are still advancing in our holiness. We're, 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 we're advancing in our sanctification. And it is not until the, the, the last time that we will actually be, be rendered uh, perfectly holy glorified, uh, entirely sanctified, as Paul says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, okay? So uh, we are regenerated. This is the first of the experimental justification sort of wraps up uh, some of the legal benefits. So regeneration uh, is paired then with definitive sanctification, sometimes called initial sanctification, I think wrongly called sometimes positional sanctification. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but uh, for now, let's just get a definition and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll visit this in some detail later on in the course. This is the instantaneous act whereby an individual is set apart to God by making a decisive breach with his slavery to sin. Okay? It doesn't mean that sin is entirely gone. That's final sanctification, entire sanctification. Nonetheless, there is a moment in time in which our slavery to sin is broken. We are no longer obliged to sin. 
uh, we are capable of pleasing God. And so definitive sanctification is that event, sort of the flip side of regeneration. We become enslaved to God and our slavery to sin ceases. And hopefully that, that word slavery doesn't frighten you. Um, Paul seems to indicate throughout his, his epistles that we're all slaves of something. And uh, the question is, what are we slaves of? And uh, sometimes his, his answers uh, as to what the best thing to be enslaved to uh, run contrary to the way we think, right? You know, he talks about a slavery to pleasure and a slavery to the flesh, uh, whereas the, uh, the unbeliever thinks, slavery? <laughs> this is what I want. You know, I, I, I want to have sinful pleasures. I want to indulge the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. This is not slavery. And yet Paul says that is slavery. That's slavery to sin. And you need to, and, and, and there is a moment in time here at regeneration where, the, where our slavery to sin is broken. We no longer are obliged to sin as we once were. And we are able now to please God. We have become slaves of God. So that's what definitive sanctification has to do with uh, the initial event. Next, we have uh, two items here, repentance and faith, that are often paired together as uh, two parts of the same coin here. Uh, repentance uh, being more the idea of turning away and faith turning toward, Okay. Uh, but there's more to be said that, than this. Repentance is the change of mind and disposition about God, Christ, and sin. We are no longer hostile towards God and ambivalent towards Christ and delighting in our sins. We've reversed course. So we've turned our back. We've turned away from sin. We've turned towards God and Christ. And then faith then is that appropriation here. Uh, of pardon and forgiveness. Uh, but it's more than just a, you know, a receipt of something. It, it is also the, 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 an act of submission. It's a full commitment to Jesus Christ and trust and submission to his accomplished redemption as revealed in the Christian scriptures. Okay. Uh, that little box there is, is something that we'll detail at some length during our course here. Uh, there's a great debate as to which one, whether regeneration and sanctification come first or whether repentance and faith come first. And you can imagine why that is the case, okay? Is salvation something fundamentally that I initiate by repenting and exercising faith in God and God responds by giving me life? Or is it the other way around? Does God grant me life which causes me then to be able to exercise repentance and faith. As you can see from the outline here and from the uh, logical ordering here, we're going to be arguing here in this class that regeneration and definitive sanctification come first, okay? logically speaking. Uh, now, again, these things all happen at the same time, so it's not like one is chronologically ahead of the other. It's not as though God will regenerate, regenerate us, and then another month later it goes by before repentance takes place. No, when God regenerates us and gives us a new nature, he, he creates a believer, okay? So, you know, that's, that's, that, that's part of the essence of the new nature, right? 
we are new persons. That is, we are not what we used to be, which are hostile people towards God. We are actually believers in God. And so when God creates a new man, he creates a believer who then automatically and immediately responds in acts of faith. Uh, so uh, the, 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 you become a believer uh, before you exercise faith or exercise belief. Belief and faith, uh, I should, should point out here, are effectively synonyms. So when you hear me use those terms, talking about the same thing. Belief or faith uh, are the same thing. They're synonymous terms. We tracking? Any, any questions, any thoughts that are troubling you? You said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That, that didn't compute. It's not how I learned it or, or whatever the case may be. Any, any thoughts? Come up for air and, and ask a question. Well, if not, let's move on uh, down the list. Justification is, uh, is the, the essence of that forensic or legal benefit of union with Christ here. Justification is God's acceptance of the believer. We are justified by faith alone. Therefore, faith comes before justification in the ordering here, right? So we are justified by faith alone. So God accepts us on account of our faith and declares us to be righteous, okay? Very important word here. He declares us to be righteous. He doesn't actually render us perfectly righteous. He declares us to be righteous and treats us as though we were righteous based wholly on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Christ's righteousness stands for, uh, for our demerit. Uh, his death is actually substituted for ours. What, what we owed God was death, and Christ canceled out that debt of death uh, by absorbing it in himself. And then he shares with us, this is the great exchange, right? His robes for mine, the song I think you sing at, uh, there at CBC, right? Okay, so his robes for mine. So, uh, so his perfect righteousness for my filthy rags. Okay, and so he takes my filthy rags and absorbs the penalty that should have been mine and grants me the righteousness uh, that is his um, by, by, by virtue of his person. Okay. Adoption is also a legal benefit, right? We are called sons of God. So it is an absorption then, or a placement into God's family as a son and an heir to all of God's benefits and provisions. This is, this is the reason why we are able to call out to him in prayer, because he has adopted us into his family, and we are his children. He regards us as his children, and therefore we can have confidence, boldness, to ask a question of him. I ask a request of him because he's dad. It, 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 I don't want to cheapen it by, by using that kind of word, but at the same time, there, there's a realization that with that family relationship, uh, that he as a just and good father is actually a better father than we as fathers are in the physical realm. And if a child can't come to his father and ask for something, uh, then, um, you know, there's there's a problem with the relationship, right? And so God, being a perfect father, uh, delights in conversation and the requests of his children. Okay, so adoption. 
Next on the list is progressive sanctification. Just because we have been initially sanctified and definitively sanctified does not mean that we have arrived. Um, in fact, that's one of the big problems uh, in, well, Christendom today is the idea of perfectionism. Um, the, the idea of being made holy and then advancing in our holiness is often lost. In fact, there are, there are whole denominations that completely lose sight of the idea of progressive sanctification. Methodism, for instance, and Wesleyanism are, are always after this event whereby one is perfected, okay? Uh, but we find as we work, th uh, work through the text that progressive sanctification is a slow and gradual advancement in his spir our spiritual lives negatively by putting to death the remnants of sin and positively by growing in Christian graces. And we're all doing that. If we're not, you know, if, if there is no progress in our sanctification, we're going to see uh, that's a great clue and, and a, or a, 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 actually a terrible red flag, right? Uh, that there may be something amiss uh, that we thought we were in, that fancied ourselves to be in, uh, but are actually um, not uh, recipients of the grace of God. So, uh, so sanctification, putting to death the remnants of sin. Remember, we, we're now, no longer totally depraved, but the remnants of sin uh, still inhabit us and still tug at us and cause us to want to sin. These are one by one extirpated. And hopefully, as uh, you can look back on your Christian life, some of, some of you have been saved a long time, others not so long, uh, but hopefully you can look back on your life and say, you know, I, I'm not, not what I need to be, but I'm not what I once was. Um, and by God's grace, I am better today than I was the first moment I believed. I've advanced. There are, there are certain sin habits uh, that I've, I've gotten a handle on. I've, I've been able to, to suppress them. I've been able to overcome them. And uh, it doesn't mean that there's, no, there's not more. Um, it seems that as we, uh, you know, each, every time we, kind of like that little, you know, that uh, little uh, groundhog game where, you, where you're, you, know, you, you pound one down and another one pops up, right? Nonetheless, you should be able to, to, have, to see some advances in your uh, Christian walk. Next, we'll talk about assurance. Um, security and assurance go together. Uh, security being the objective fact that anyone who is, in fact, a, a child of God will persist in that. Uh, we are secure in, in the hands of God. We cannot lose our salvation. Assurance is related, but not identical to it. Assurance is our personal knowledge and certainty that that applies to me. Okay, so there's the objective statement. Once God saves, he saves permanently. But assurance then is the question, okay, is that me? <laughs> so it's a subjective question. And, and when, when I mean subjective, it means it involves the subject in the answer. Was it, was it me? Did, did, did I get saved? Am I one of those people? And how do I know? How, how, can, how can I look at my life and say, I am certain that God saved me? Um, and there's a lot of wrong ideas about that, right? Uh, for some, it's okay. I, I said a prayer when I was a kid. Or, you know, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a 
Bible, you know, I put, I put a date in the front of my Bible. That was the day I got saved. And then you sort of promptly forget about it. And uh, that I think we're going to find as we look through the, through the material on, on assurance that the assurance is not based on something I have done, but rather something that I'm continuing to do. This is the evidence that it took. Uh, First John, I think, is given over to that whole topic. These things are written to you that call upon the name of the Lord that you may know that you have eternal life. And it, it just goes through. You, how do you know? Well, you have love for the brethren. You, you, and, I, and I saw that, you know, when we, we all faces came up. And he said, oh, it's good. I haven't seen you in year, months, it seems. And, 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 and so I, there's this delight in seeing one another. Okay. Well, that's, a, that's an indication, right? Uh, that, that's, that's, an, that's an assuring moment. Uh, there, are, there are, you know, one praise, okay, and you know, there are things, things that only you know, uh, that uh, if a person who does not pray, a praying Christian's an oxymoron, and so the, 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 and uh, this, is, this is very clear in Romans chapter 8, when we call out, call out Abba Father, that act is an assuring act, it's one of those spontaneous things that you do, right, when something terrible happens, what do you do? Uh, if one of the, at least one of the things on the list is not call out to God, then you know, perhaps there should be some worries that you have. And so we find that assurance then is tied not to what I am doing, but what God is doing through me and in me. Okay. And that's where assurance comes to us. So how do we have that personal knowledge and personal certainty that I'm actually a recipient of the uh, of the grace of god perseverance then is the continuance of the believer in faith sound doctrine and good works and i think i somebody said at the beginning that escape save all your questions for this uh and uh, this is something of a controversial doctrine but probably shouldn't be okay again we're not talking about perfection okay? i think some people think when they hear hear perseverance okay i've got to persevere perfectly in good works and i have to always have the same level of faith in god as as you know that that hundred percent and and this this sound i can't ever make a mistake in my theology well that's not what is meant here no i i'm i'm persevering in believing believing and submit trusting in god submitting to him believing what he has told me and and responding with good works Okay, and that is something that, while uneven, always should have an upward trajectory to it, right? And that's what we mean by perseverance. And uh, and uh, the scriptures say quite plainly uh, that all true believers will persevere. That is, there will be this advance. That you'll you'll never you'll never you know the the upward trajectory will never just go down flat and remain that way. You're you're not going to flatline. Okay. Um, there has to be a continuance. And then glorification, of course, is the final consummation of salvation, wherein the believer is freed from the presence of sin and receives fullness of adoption and resurrection life. And we uh, close out by saying, even so, Lord, come quickly and bring that about. I've got a, a very short bibliography here. Um, it's a couple pages in, our, in, uh, in, in the seminary course here, but just some of the Key works, if you have questions that uh, emerge 
uh, as we take this course, uh, some, of the, some, some of these are the better books uh, that can address some of the questions you might have. D.A. Carson has a very helpful book on divine sovereignty and human freedom and the intersection of those two, right? Okay, how can God be sovereign and man be free? Uh, well, they, that, that's what this book is about. I think it's very, very well done. Melvin Dieter has a book, Five Views of Sanctification, and I'm really pointing that to specifically to Anthony Hokema's essay here uh, on the means of sanctification. Anthony Hokema actually has a whole work, Saved by Grace. If John Murray wasn't your textbook, this one would be. Okay, it's a very, very helpful book here on uh, uh, the, the aspects, the pieces of the salvation exercise, and so a very helpful book. John MacArthur's uh, Gospel According to Jesus um, is a very uh, important book uh, that, uh, that uh, talks about the essence of faith as submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, it really hit the fan when it came out because there were uh, those who were saying that uh, you, you, you ask Jesus to be your Savior, and then later on, after months or years, you submit to him as your Lord, as a second step. And MacArthur, I think, very carefully makes the case uh, that that's not the way the gospel works. Um, exercising faith in Jesus as Savior happens simultaneously with submitting to him as Lord. Now, there is a sense, of course, where throughout life we gradually cede to God uh, areas of our life that we had sort of, you know, have, have, have not, you know, yielded to him. At the same time, we have to recognize that part and parcel of faith is submitting, trusting, uh, and, 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 and embracing uh, what Christ has done and embracing him as our Lord. John Murray has a good book, uh, of course, your textbook there, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, probably the best concise treatment here of the elements of, of salvation. He also has a very good book, Principles of Conduct, uh, that detail the sanctification of the believer. Packer has another uh, helpful work on the sovereignty of God as it affects uh, the evangelistic task. If God is sovereign, why should I pray? If God's sovereign, why should I evangelize? If he's elected everyone who's going to believe in eternity past, why do I have to do anything? Uh, it's going to happen whether I participate or not. Well, he addresses with some of those. He also has, again, a helpful book on sanctification, keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Schreiner and Ware have this collection of essays, Still Sovereign, Perspectives on Election, Foreknowledge, and Grace, I think is very helpful. Um, Schreiner and Kennedy have a, have a helpful book on uh, some of the later elements on our list, Perseverance, Assurance, and Security. And then R.C. Sproul has a very good, helpful book, Chosen by God on Election. So some, some helpful books that you can sort of pursue if you have persistent questions after we get through each section. Any questions up till this point? Yes. Yeah, Dr. Snowberger. So back to these terms. Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference between under atonement, it's the gift of righteousness, and then under justification talks about imputed righteousness of Christ. What are the difference between those two? Well, in that case, I wasn't intending any difference. Uh, so okay. so when, when Christ died on the cross, he made, uh, made available 
his righteousness, which he shares with us in justification. So, but, but when he gives us his righteousness, it doesn't mean that he makes us perfect. It, it is, it is, as sometimes we say, he's put on our account. In fact, some of the, there's some very legal accounting terms that are used in the scriptures of justification. The righteousness of Christ is placed on our account. Okay, so that's why I say it's legal. We don't actually experience his righteousness. Uh, we actually have it imputed to our account. And so when God checks the books, you know, the, the books balance, right? Because we have the righteousness necessary to cancel out the debt of sin that we had. So, yes. So I, I meant no difference in that, in, okay. that, in that context. Thank you. Other thoughts, other questions? Okay, let's just get a brief start here on the doctrine of election, and uh, perhaps we can address some of the uh, uh, some of the key terms again, and then uh, look at uh, uh, some views of election that are are less than biblical, but are still out there. I want to I want to talk here about a couple of terms right up front here that are sometimes used in this discussion, and you might wonder, what's, what's the connection between election and predestination and foreknowledge? They're, they're, they're words that are all sort of jumbled together and very much interconnected, but what, what's, what is the exact connection between them? Well, we've defined here election as God's sovereign choice in eternity past of individuals to be recipients of all the salvific benefits of Christ's atonement. So what is the difference then between election and predestination? Well, predestination and foreordination, these are two terms that are used throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, has reference to God's overall plan and purpose, whereby he eternally, independently, and certainly determines all events in the universe by the mere counsel of his own will. Okay, so... Uh, when we say we say predestined, he predestined us to salvation, but he also predestined the weather today. You know, so predestination or foreordination is a is a much more broad, a broader, a more encompassing term uh, than than election. Election has to do with the personal choice of individuals to salvation. So election, if we were going to draw the uh, diagram here, so foreordination or predestination is the larger category. Election is the narrower category in, 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 the, in the center of the circle here. Uh, so election is a personal choice of individuals. Predestination is the fact that he has planned eternally everything that will happen his in his universe. And they're, they're all sort of connected together. In fact, I, I have down there Ephesians uh, 1.11 as a, as a key text here because uh, it ties them together in this verse. He sa it says here, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things out after the counsel of his own will. Okay, so the working of all things out to the counsel of his whole will is the, his foreordination of all things. But there's also within this, the predestination of persons or the election of individuals to salvation. So they're obviously related terms, but they're not identical terms. The word foreknowledge is perhaps one a, a term that is widely misunderstood, okay? Um, and uh, we, we find here we have been foreknown in eternity past. What does that mean? 
Well, I'm going to say here that it's a synonym for election. Okay. Now you say that doesn't seem right. That, that, you know, I, foreknowledge means to know before. And so there are, there are some who understand uh, foreknowledge as to be, to be God's knowledge of the fact that I'm going to believe before it happens. Okay, so God looks down the corridors of time and says, aha, I see here that Mark Hunter is going to believe. And based on that foreknowledge or that knowledge in advance, then God actually elects based on foreknowledge. But that misunderstands uh, the term here, foreknowledge. And this is one of those times I wish I had my, had my whiteboard behind me. Uh, but uh, it, you, you can see here the term for and knowledge. The, the for is not the question here. It means before. Uh, but the term knowledge is the, uh, is the critical term here. And, and, and hopefully you're going to see this, this in, in the English word know as well. I mean, it's, it's the same thing in Greek as it is in English. When we say that we know something, that means we know a fact, okay? And so we foreknow facts in one sense. So we can know, and in fact, the, the Bible, we actually find at least in one occasion in the, in the book of Acts, where this word foreknow is used this way. Uh, Paul foreknew that no one was going to, on that ship that was shipwrecked. No one was going to die. So it says here that Paul foreknew this. So he foreknew facts, okay? But when we use the word know of persons, whether we're talking Greek or whether we're talking about English, we mean something different, right? If I would happen to say, I know Ken Brown, what does that mean? It does not mean that I know facts about Ken Brown, although do. What it means there is I have an acquaintance with him. I have a relationship with him. Okay. And, uh, and, and in fact, that term know is used the same way in the scriptures. In fact, you know, I don't want to be crass here, but uh, we actually see that word used of the sexual relationship, right? You know, it, you know, Adam knew Eve. Oh, it's a, it's a sort of a euphemistic way of saying that they had sexual relationships. Well, why is that word used? Well, because it fits. He chose to have a special relationship with her, okay? And so when we see this word foreknowledge in the context of salvation in the scriptures and uh, multiple key places in Romans 8, 11, and then 1 Peter 1, we find that this term is used of individuals, not of events. So it's when God says he foreknows us, it does not mean he knows in advance that we're going to believe in him for salvation. Rather, it means that he chose to establish a relationship with us before time. Okay, uh, So uh, we, we, we need to realize that that term foreknowledge is not to be thought, thought of as the, the idea of simple foreknowledge, where I know in advance facts, but rather I've established a relationship in advance with a person. Okay, so those are, those are key terms that we're going to be using here uh, that, that sort of hover and intersect with uh, this word election. And in this case, foreknowledge, to foreknow someone, is the same as saying to elect someone. They're synonymous terms. Okay, does that, does that make sense? Does that, does that follow? Does that throw anybody? Okay, 
Um, we're bumping up on eight o'clock here. Don't want to overwhelm you the first night. So let's go ahead and cut off here on page three on views of election uh, that are basically unbiblical or, or incorrect. And so we'll, we'll look at that uh, next week. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll make considerable, considerably greater progress next week. Um, but I think we had a good start. Uh, thanks for coming and uh, glad you could, could stop by. Uh, any final questions before we call tonight and, and, and go our separate ways? Okay then, thanks for stopping by and we'll see you next week.